It's Infrastructure Week Part 2 in Washington as a second meeting between President Trump and congressional Democrats has everyone guessing what will or won't come from the discussion. Is a gas tax dead? What about the price tag? The $2 trillion figure from the last meeting is still making heads spin. The scheduled conversation doesn't line up with our deadline to publish this podcast, but we're all watching, and whatever comes of the session, we'll be sure to follow up. I don't think there's a single member of Congress who doesn't agree that the system is badly in need of repair, and we've got to help them find the political will to, uh, to fund the repairs that are needed. We also are looking at raising the gas tax and raising the tax on diesel fuel that would directly affect our industry. But anything that would have to do with the promotion of infrastructure where more concrete would be used is definitely uh, a priority for us. This is Hard Facts. I'm Robert Johnson. Every industry group that belongs to the North American Concrete Alliance has an interest in what's happening here in D.C. Bob Risser's members are no different. He's president and CEO of the Precast Pre-Stressed Concrete Institute. We are the technical institute primarily. That was what our foundation is for the pre-stressed concrete industry. Our members make precast elements, pre-stressed elements for bridges and buildings and other infrastructure in plant locations and then deliver them to the job sites. PCI was formed initially to codify and to enhance the technology of pre-stressing, which uh, emerged after World War II, and that remains our our roots. Uh, We're also the main certifying body for pre-stressing plants. We've got 270 domestic plants with 160 different members. We're also the trade association for the industry, so we provide training and education provide market support, education and promotion materials for building with pre-stressed concrete and government affairs representation for our members with our other cement and concrete industry partners in Washington. Now, when I look around at projects of any kind, be they transportation infrastructure or commercial construction, it seems I see a lot more precast work being implemented into those jobs. Is this segment of the concrete industry growing? It is growing, and in many years, we're growing faster than construction overall. The mega trend is towards off-site construction. More and more restrictions on job sites, certainly in the bridge arena, the accelerated bridge construction, the ABC, has been touted by federal highways and adopted by many state DOTs, and precast especially lends itself to that type of construction. We've got showcase projects where we've rebuilt entire bridges in major metropolitan areas over over a weekend by being able to bring in the elements that have already gained strength in the precast plant. That trend is also on the commercial side in terms of access to sites and, and the speed of construction. That's what precast really brings to the table is the ability for a structure to go up very, very quickly and still have the attributes of concrete. And that's because the concrete is hard already, right? You don't have to wait. Right. All the curing and strength gain has been done back at the plant. You don't have to wait for the concrete to cure on site. And the architect or the designer, whoever's building the project, can give you those specs when they start the job. They might 
be out clearing the land, putting in the utilities, and you're already making the pieces that they'll use when the time comes to bring them in and put them up. Exactly. Sort of the rule of thumb in the industry is that uh, the producer needs to have at least 50% of the pieces already made before they even start erection on the project because uh, of how quickly it, it goes up. That's the other advantage of precast is that they can get started making the elements while the underground work and other excavation is being done on site. I think when you look at a road project or a bridge project, uh, most people probably assume that we're talking about sound walls, but it's a lot more than that today. Absolutely. The main element that our members, well, although many of our members do make sound walls, the technology that's unique to PCI is pre-stressing, uh, which allows you to use smaller elements or the elements can take much larger loads with the pre-stressing technology. And that's, uh, that's primarily done in bridge beams. We've seen a tremendous shift over the last 30 years uh, within the DOTs from structural steel to pre-stressed concrete in the highway market for bridge beams and, uh, and deck panels. Again, the advantage being that you don't have to wait for the concrete to cure and gain strength on the job site and get those projects open to traffic that much faster. And they're just as strong. In fact, they're stronger because of the pre-stressing. Conventional cast-in-place concrete is reinforced with passive reinforcing steel. Pre-stressing technology takes very, very strong steel cables and stresses them to a very high degree, which is then put into that concrete. So you can get much, much more load-carrying capacity out of a pre-stressed beam than a conventionally reinforced one. All this talk about transportation infrastructure, I assume, then means that you and your members are following what's going on here in Washington as we debate yet again how and when to pass a transportation funding bill. Absolutely. We're working with other industry partners. We advocate for the need for a robust infrastructure program to carry commerce in the country, and uh, we'll join with, with other groups calling for that. It's been a backbone of our economy. I don't think there's a single member of Congress who doesn't agree that the system is badly in need of repair, and we've got to help them find the political will to, uh, to fund the repairs that are needed. What sort of feedback are you getting from your members about what they've heard so far uh, coming out of Washington? What do they think? What our members are hearing is the same thing that a lot of us are hearing. Members of Congress are recognizing that there is a need, but they're struggling with the will to come up with the funding mechanisms, whether it be a gas tax increase or some other sort of vehicle miles traveled or other funding mechanism to raise the necessary amount to fix our infrastructure. Is there anything in particular as this debate goes forward in 2019 that you and the members of your institute would like to see included as far as policy goes? I think there's two pieces that our members would like to see in this next infrastructure bill. The first is, I guess I would call it a short-term stopgap. Uh, And there's been many studies by both uh, political parties in different administrations that have said that in the short term, there's a need to raise the gas tax. Our members would fully support that initiative in the short term. Uh, In the long term, we believe that we've got to find the next solution for infrastructure funding. The gas tax served us very well for the 20th century, but with CAFE standards continuing to push the limits and the rise of 
electric vehicles and now other powered vehicles like hydrogen cells. We've got to find the funding mechanism for the 21st century. And we'd like to see this next bill take a, a step towards transitioning to a funding source that follows traffic. Traffic continues to go up. Funding through the gas tax to the highway trust fund continues to go down. And so those are not on a parallel course with each other. And I think the, the country needs to get weaned off the gas tax and moved over to some other sort of user fee that will get us the resources necessary to keep up with the needs of the system as our population continues to grow. So that idea has been on the table for quite a while. I wonder if you think that making that sort of change is possible given all of the constituencies and the issues involved. What's it going to take to get that done? Woo. Well, I think in some cases it's going to take, it's going to take some courage in our, uh, in our political leaders. Uh, I don't know how large of a supply there is for that these days, but I mean, the, um, we, we need some vision of the future. We're headed in the wrong direction. I think there's strong, if not universal, agreement that the funding sources through the gas tax are going in the wrong direction. And we've got to work out some of the pilots that have been tried in Oregon and some of these other places to get something that is still a user fee, because everyone agrees with that concept. It's going to take some bold leadership to start making those steps. Either way, I think you would probably say, let's get something done so that we can continue to make investments because the bridges, the roads, they're not getting any younger. Oh, absolutely. There's an immediate term. There have been a number of studies from different places, and I said different administrations that have all come to the same conclusion that we need an increase in the gas tax in the short term. I'd like to see some progress then on a longer term user fee uh, in this next bill. But we, we've got to get a bill done now that can start addressing some of the needs that are so prevalent. You may have just answered the last question, but I'll give you a chance to repeat it perhaps in a different way. Why is it critical to your members, your industry, to the people that you know who use the system, that Congress get something done this year? I don't think it's as critical to our membership. Our membership is about 30% of our producers are in the transportation side. The rest are in commercial construction. But I think it's a broader need than that. I think the infrastructure supports our economy. And you run to the point where you're hindering GDP growth for the economy as a whole. The residual benefit to our members of an infrastructure program that's at the, the proper levels uh, is probably secondary to the needs of serving our economy and the American people. Companies that operate concrete pumps support more funding for transportation projects, but that's not their only federal concern. Christy Collins is executive director of the American Concrete Pumping Association. She tells us what's on her agenda. We represent concrete pumping companies. These would be companies that own concrete pumps and then rent them out to contractors to place their concrete. We also represent the manufacturers of concrete placing and accessories, equipment, and then also uh, distributors. We have other professionals. Anybody that has anything to do with concrete pump, 
we're their association. But it's primarily made up of smaller companies, actually, more like what you would call your mom and pop type of companies. Our average member owns seven concrete pumps. And so typically it's a family business and they're very involved in the day-to-day operations of their business. And and we represent really their best interest in areas of safety, promotion, advocacy, regulatory, workforce development. Uh, We're just kind of their go-to source to help them be better at what they do. How big is this business nationally? You know, we don't really have a number on that. I can tell you that we have about 7,000 working boom pumps in the market every day. And there's probably three to four times that many of the trailer pumps. But as far as a dollar amount on the business, we've really never been able to put a number to that. But these pumps are everywhere. I know what you're talking about. I see them all over the place. It's a lot of work going on. It is a lot of work going on. And you notice a concrete pump because you're probably a little bit more in tune to it. But most people, when we start a conversation with people outside of our industry, usually the question I first ask is, have you ever seen a concrete pump or do you know what one is? And about 70% of the time, the answer is no. So we usually have to explain what it is. A lot of people get them confused with mobile cranes. And a lot of people just don't pay that much attention to them, even though they are typically on every concrete construction job that would be happening. And it doesn't really matter whether that project is below you or above you, you still have to pump the concrete into the project to build it. Any way that concrete is placed other than just truck dumping. So if concrete can just be dumped someplace, then you may not find a concrete pump. But any other place where it would be pumped, like you say, if it's up, down, wherever, is placed by a concrete pump. It would seem with so much construction work going on in the U.S., 7,000 pumps wouldn't be enough. A pump doesn't stay on a job all day long. You're only on the job long enough to place the concrete where the contractor wants it, and then the pump cleans up and goes back. So they can do, optimally, they can do more than one job a day. That's not always possible. But actually, 7,000 concrete pumps is probably, I won't say that it's, that the market is flooded, but I know our members are very happy because they're very busy. They probably could have more concrete pumps out there, but like everybody else, we have a huge workforce problem. So there is some iron that's actually sitting and not working every day. Wow. Well, your website talks about promoting concrete pumping as the choice method of placing concrete. Can you explain that to us? How do you go about that? Well, years ago, that was a that was one of the major challenges for the industry. In fact, that's one of the reasons that and safety were probably the two big reasons why the association was formed in the first place. But clearly, concrete pumping, it's more efficient, it's cheaper, it's safer, it's all those different things now that it's just the chosen method of placing concrete. That's really not a hurdle anymore. There's probably very few contractors that would ever say, oh, I think we'll crane and bucket this concrete instead of having a concrete pump. Those days are gone. We just don't really do that anymore. But what we do promote 
is we promote safety and how using the equipment is safer, requiring less manpower, more efficiency. We still do promote that somewhat, but we've also now looked to a bigger platform, which is not just promoting concrete pumping, but looking at the bigger picture, we're promoting concrete. There's still a decision being made on many jobs every day about what kind of materials to use, so you've gotten into the actual conversation about that as well. Obviously, the more concrete that's produced, the more we pump. We have been very active with our group, the North American Concrete Alliance, or NACA, in promoting concrete as the preferred building material uh, for obvious reasons, resiliency and sustainability. We're even challenging the fact that we believe that concrete can be just as green and just as environmentally friendly as other types of building material. NACA is really the best vehicle for us in working on those types of initiatives. We're here in Washington, D.C. A lot of conversation going on all the time about funding infrastructure, which is a piece of this equation for you and others in the industry. What issues are you following on behalf of your members here in Washington along those lines? The ICC vote to allow tall wood, that was a huge disappointment and a big blow to our industry for several reasons. One, obviously it allows wood into the tall building sector that has been historically dominated by concrete. And then, of course, we also look at it even on a, on a personal side that we feel that that's the wrong decision for the health and safety of, of ourselves, our families, and the public. We just believe that it was the wrong decision. So we look at those things. We also are looking at raising the gas tax and raising the tax on diesel fuel. That would directly affect our industry. But anything that would have to do with the promotion of infrastructure where more concrete would be used is definitely uh, a priority for us. Other than that tall wood vote, are you concerned or satisfied or otherwise perplexed by the fact that we haven't gotten a lot done back here in Washington lately? Uh, how, how are you feeling about oh, progress or lack oh thereof? <laughs> well, I'll give you a good example. So this is, this is a a pumping-specific issue to us. Since 2005, we have been working on some tax relief for concrete pumpers. Without going into the long history, in 2004, the mobile machinery exemption was codified into law in the American Jobs and Creation Act, which was great for us because concrete pumps meet the definite mobile machinery. But they put this caveat in the law that said that in order that you don't pay tax on your off-road fuel, your vehicle cannot travel more than 7,500 miles per year. We are the only piece of mobile machinery that more or less fell through the cracks on this issue. So a concrete pump goes out to a job, sets up, pumps the job, cleans up, many times comes back, or as I said, if they're fortunate, they get to do a second job. The 7,500 miles limits a concrete pump to 15 miles to a job and 15 miles to their shop a day. So for a lot of cities, you take 
even Columbus, Ohio, where our national headquarters is. 15 miles is not much to get around this town. So most concrete pumps are going over that 7,500-mile threshold, and we're losing the tax exemption for the fuel that is used off-road. Clearly, when you look at a concrete pump, and I'm probably getting way too technical on this issue, but you kind of have to explain it. Most of a concrete pump's fuel is used while in PTO on a job site. So we're burning all this fuel off the road and paying taxes on it, paying road taxes on it. So since 2005, we've been working on trying to get the portion that we consume off-road back. We have yet to go into an office in that it's been 14 years. We have talked to probably every member up there, and everyone agrees it would be a good thing. Nobody opposes the deduction, but we can't get a vehicle to pass through Congress that we can get this piece of legislation put into that would get tax relief for our industry. In the overall grand scheme of the government's budget, they call what we're asking for budget dust or eraser dust. But because they can't pass any substantial piece of legislation, we still sit out here waiting in the wings. So when you talk frustration, we're very frustrated. That's an interesting example of what goes on back here that really escapes the attention of most people in America, yet has a real impact on businesses that are creating jobs, paying other kinds of taxes, and then ultimately helping to build out the nation's infrastructure. That can be frustrating. It's very frustrating. It's been very frustrating for us, especially when there's no opposition. There's no opposition. It's just there is no vehicle to put it into. And this money they call eraser dust. This would be especially for my smaller companies that own those seven concrete pumps. Many times, especially when we, you know, we came through a recession that just annihilated our industry. And that type of tax relief could have made the difference between a make or break year for these people. And to think that we're just sitting out here kind of waiting for something to eventually happen, it's frustrating. It's also, it's very defeating. It doesn't give you a good sense of how, our, of how the process works. But we're still at it. We're not giving up, and we're, we, we still have hope. And that's one reason, another reason, I guess, why our affiliation with NACA is so important. They help us get our voice heard, not only on the big platform, but even, even on these smaller initiatives that we have. Next week, we'll have the latest on the political wrangling over a transportation funding package, and we'll wrap up our series of interviews with members of the North American Concrete Alliance. That's Wednesday, May 29th on Hard Facts, a podcast production of the Portland Cement Association. I'm Robert Johnson. I'll see you then.